morning, guys. Happy Wednesday. And thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday weekend and that you're refreshed and ready to go because let me tell you, we got a big week ahead. I'll talk about all that today and I'll tell you stories about some fighters that you love to hate, including John Jones and Jake Paul. That's later in the show, but first, let's begin by breaking down the event that fight founds around the world cannot wait to see go down on Saturday night. So Dustin Poirier has let us in on why he chose the Connor Trilogy over the title fight. And look, there's going to be no surprise here. It was about the money. And Poirier just said, look, fighting Connor pays four times what fighting for the title pays. And I have no problem with the fact that he disclosed this. I feel that he stated the obvious. Whether he would have said this or not, we all would have known that. Maybe we didn't know it was 25%. But I think that we get the point. I think that was what all of our guesses were. And, I mean, the mask is off. Apparently, Dustin Poirier has a price. It seems that everybody has a price. And is he willing to put his goal of the championship aside? Yeah. I mean, it comes back to the old joke. Winston Churchill walks into a bar, walks up to a girl and says, would you sleep with me for $1,000? And she says, well, yes. And he says, would you sleep with me for a dollar? And he said, I'm not. A, and she says, no, I'm not a whore. And he said, man, we already established what you are. Now we're just negotiating price. But it does bring you back, right? I mean, I can't help but look at what Poirier is saying, of which I have no problem with. But it was just three weeks ago, people are upset about what Logan and Jake Paul were making. I remember Francis Ngannou sending another tweet, what are we doing wrong? It's not a matter of anything wrong. The size of the audience directly reflects the size of your participation, and that's all that Poirier is talking about. But what needs to be observed is it happens in this sport too. It doesn't just happen in some entertainment spoof or some sideshow. You don't have to have one of the one of the twins there or one of the Mayweathers there. If there's a huge audience and a huge crowd, it can affect your participation. Speaking of this fight, I've had a lot of fun with this. But a lot of fun with the buildup because of the speculation, right? And I would encourage people, I would encourage them to remove the last fight from their memory if they're attempting to handicap this contest. Only because that was the single worst Conor McGregor we have ever seen. But we have reason to know and understand that as to why. The layoff, the absence, in lieu of what he wanted. I mean, Conor McGregor against Donald Cerrone was an amazing performance by Conor. But the post-fight was just as amazing when he revealed to the world, I'm going to fight four times this year, this is one, I want three more in the next 11 months. He was serious and we didn't give it to him. So now he's stuck with a layoff in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, training was bizarre for everybody in that. He's in Fight Island, he's across from a guy who he thinks he knows because he's been in there with him before. I mean, there was a lot of things where you could just look at and justify. This is before you get into the calf kicks. So much has been made about the calf kicks, and I don't begrudge that. It was a very real thing. I only share with you all of the problems that Connor had leading into this fight before we start talking about a weapon that he was unfamiliar with. Okay. Along the vein of enjoying the thought, Chris Weidman has weighed in. Chris Mywin made weighed in, essentially saying that Connor lost some of his swagger. That Connor used to walk to the ring as though I own it. And that he doesn't have that same confidence and aura, and that Chris can see and observe that there's a different Connor. Dan Hardy weighed in and said, I think that Connor McGregor is an overall better martial artist. I think he has a better application of martial arts, better strategy, better control of distance and range. All right. 
Where that becomes interesting isn't Weidman's opinion. It isn't Hardy's opinion. Chael comes in, shows his opinion. That's not what's interesting. What's interesting is Hardy, Weidman, and whoever else decides to weigh in on this is letting you into their psyche. They're letting you into their approach into this. Weidman must feel at some point that that walk to the ring and that confidence and aura as you leave the locker room is greatly helpful within his own career. And Dan Hardy must look at the sport as though who understands it better, who is a greater mastery of the techniques is likely to win. Neither guy's wrong. It's just interesting to hear these top-level guys reveal and let us in to their own makeup. And of those two breakdowns, I will tell you, Dan Hardy surprised me more. I completely concur with what Dan said, that it has to do with skill, that it has to do with range, that it has to do with an application of the understanding of the techniques themselves, as long as we're only talking about the first round. The first round is about who's better. The rest of the fight is about who's tougher. That's where the fight starts. It's a sport in the first round. First five minutes is all about a sport and how did you prepare? What is your IQ? After that, it is straight chaos where you were digging deep. You were turning to the techniques that you learned when you were 10 and 11 and 14 years old. Absolutely nothing else. You're looking for survival. You're waiting to hear the horn. You're counting down the time in your head how much time is. I mean, it's just one of these things where the fight doesn't break out in the first round. That's a sporting contest. That's a battle of skill. After the first round, right, when a guy's nose is bleeding, when his eye is swollen, when his heart rate is up, that's where the fight begins. And you can break down those techniques. I just don't know how accurate you would be over history to discover great techniques and combinations and setups later in a contest. That's where you see that heart and that grit and that determination. That's where it becomes very straightforward. Who's staying on the outside? Who's getting in and doing the work? Who prefers to be in one of those areas? I mean, that's where it really comes down to. Now, I'm not disagreeing with Dan Hardy. I'm just sharing as he let us in on his mindset. Maybe that's all I'm doing now. I'm letting you in on my mindset. But Weidman also let us know that the approach for him, how do you feel before Bruce Buffer ever says your name? And it's one of those deals where each fighter is different. It's why if you get 10 of us together, we can never agree on an upcoming contest. You would think... Oh, I have great insight here. Let me just speak to one of the pros. And then I'll go put my money down with the pro says. Pros get it wrong all the time because all that they can do is follow the golden rule of treat somebody else the way you'd want to be treated. How would I react in a situation if I was in this situation? Not a lot of undefeated fighters out there, right? I mean, there's not a lot of guys out there that know the perfect recipe or how to deal with it. I will share with you. I love the idea of technique and I looked at myself as a technician. I, that was the most interesting part for me. It was the only part of practice that I really enjoyed. I liked learning different setups, and I liked learning different executions. I viewed myself as a technician. If you get a Chael Son and Technique video, you're going to have some good technique, spend a lifetime to a core. I will just tell you that I also know in my heart when the going gets tough, and it gets there pretty damn fast, it's not about the perfect technique. Sometimes you got to just grab a guy and throw him down. I don't know, wrestling coach Rick Stewart used to tell us that all the time. I can work on the technique, and you pull here, and you move the elbow, and you rotate, and you come to one knee, and you switch to... Sometimes you got to grab a guy and throw him down. i got to work with Coach Kenny Adams, military's coach. He was Clayton Hire's coach. Got to work with him one day, and we were talking about body shots, coming in and trying to get to that liver, get to the body. 
And I remember Coach Adams said 20 different times, there's a lot of different setups. There's a lot of things you can look for him to do. There's a slip. There's a way you can turn. If you can just walk up to a guy and hit him right in that spot, it's the same thing. So you can overthink this, or you can see the target, take your hand, and run it into it. I think that that's more of the theory that is going to apply to Dustin Poirier only because of the activity. With that activity comes timing. With that timing comes conditioning, and it would just seem to me it would behoove Poirier more. But I think that Hardy makes a good point, which is as long as Connor cannot make this about grit and toughness, as long as he can make it about sport and technique, he is a true master. So that's my thought on Saturday's main event, and I promise you all that I'll have much more on that later in the week. I gotta tell you, because of how big this Poirier-McGregor trilogy fight is, there's one massive fight that enough of us aren't really talking about. I'll tell you one that's going under the radar, but the co-main event, Gilbert Burns versus Wonderboy. Now that's just, that's always gonna go under the radar, right? When you have Conor McGregor in the room sucking all of the life out of it, it's hard for anybody to get any shine. But th this is a meaningful fight for the division. And you're also stuck in a paradox for either guy of where do we go from here? We've got Colby coming up against Usman. Something's going on with Shemaev. You can't deny what Leon is out there doing. So what happens with these two? Because Wonderboy made a point a while ago, and he's not without merit in this point, which is I should get a world title fight because I'm the only guy in the top five who hasn't got one yet. I mean, look, is that the way it works? No. But that's not a terrible point. Wonderboy's done some heavy lifting, man. And he's got a real fan base around him. Let me tell you why I think this fight's interesting. Gilbert Burns, who is a dominant grappler compared to Wonderboy, compared to about everybody in the division, a dominant, dominant grappler, doesn't get to grapple unless he can get the opponent down. I'm not convinced he can get Wonderboy down. At least not at will. When T. Wood couldn't do it, just by example, the fact that Wonder Boy's related to Chris Weidman and trains with him, I mean, not for nothing, but I think he's got good takedown defense. That's the only point I'm trying to make. So what do you do if you can't take a guy down? You're Gilbert Burns. You fight him on the feet. Now, Gilbert's whipped plenty of men on the feet, but there is something true. It's more true, more glaringly obvious in boxing than it is in MMA, but there is something true that when a guy gets knocked down or out, it changes him, and it's not his jaw, regardless of what people tell you. He gets knocked out easier. It's none of those things. Psychologically, he's more hesitant. It slows him down. He doesn't flow. He doesn't let his offense go, and he becomes a, a, a punching bag. So it's not that he can't take as good of a shot. It's that he begins taking harder and more shots. Is that going to help happen to Gilbert? Well, it's a fair point. It really is, and I believe that Gilbert has the power Gilbert can take care of himself on his feet with anybody. He has the power, but Wonder Boy is dynamic. He's hard to prepare for. There's not a lot of guys who can Wonder Boy quite like Wonder Boy. No matter what you're willing to pay, no matter who you know in the circles, to find a training partner, a sparring partner, to come in to mimic that is hard to do. And I only bring that to you because... I do feel it would put Wonderboy in a very good position. I feel that Gilbert Burns hasn't got any missteps in a meaningful period of time. 
I understand that he lost to Usman, but I don't know of a misstep that he made, even stepping in and taking the Usman fight. And don't forget about how busy Gilbert Burns was leading in to that Usman fight, which is why he got the nod over everybody else in the first place. Can only deny him for so long. Works his way up to main events and starts beating up main event fighters, three and four of them in a year. You gotta give him something for that, which is what he got. So what's he have to do to get back? What does this fight represent? It's a co-main event now. The winner of this can't go lower on the card, right? Just, histori- I say we're like he can't, but historically speaking, they don't. So you stay at co-main or you move to main. How, how many do you got before you're at the belt? It's one of those tough spots. And I would encourage whoever wins this fight to be very clear now, now, before you get to the post-fight speech of who you're going to call out, because your options are going to be very limited. Colby's busy. That's going to leave you jumping on the Chemayev grenade or the Leon grenade. So I think that it would be wise if you picked between those two, who do you feel with your style is easier and more beatable? And don't do anything other than that, by the way. There there is no pride in being stupid. There is nothing that should shine your ego about being foolish. You want to fight the easiest guy for the biggest paycheck every time. That should be your career. Whether you get your way or not, that's what you should be strategizing and trying to do. And I can remember times back on The Ultimate Fighter, you'd have the hardest guy and the coin toss and the team that gets to pick and you'd call out the hardest guy, right? The number nine seed calls out the number one seed. And people go, why, why did you call him out? Well, I want to beat the best guy. Why would you want to beat the best guy? Who told you that? That's stupid. You don't get a pat on the back for being stupid. You call out the easiest guy. Now, easy is a kind of a hard word, right? I mean, this is a pretty macho business, and there's no fat on the bone. But my point stays the same. It is your job to assess the other team, not look at rankings, not look at seedings, not look at who the first pick was. Look for who is the guy I am most likely to beat. That's the guy you call out. And I would encourage the winner. I, I, I really would, because it's going to matter. Gilbert Burns matters right now. Stephen Thompson matters right now. And Stephen Thompson comes in with a very good point, which is I have yet to get my crack. And I'm ranked number five. I only bring that to you because neither one is going right into Usman. So you're going to be left with Leon, and you're going to be left with Chemayev. I would encourage you to have your answer pocketed, call your shot, make sure it's not the one you don't want. Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, Wonderboy Thompson and Gilbert Burns. Guys, I can't wait for those fights. And coming up next, I'm going to tell you about another superstar-filled fight that I would love to see. But first, here's a word about today's sponsor, Athletic Greens. Today's episode of Your Welcome is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive, tasty, daily nutritional beverage I have ever had. Summer has officially started, which means time off relaxation and vacation mode for some of us this does not mean to get relaxed with your nutrition athletic greens is helping me stay on point with healthy nutritional habits one scoop of this daily all-in-one superfood powder contains 75 vitamins minerals and whole food sourced ingredients including a multivitamin multi-mineral probiotic green superfood blend and more They all work together 
to fill the nutritional gaps in our diet, increase energy and focus, help with digestion, and support a healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products. What a relief. Athletic Greens is my one-stop shop for it all. Guys, it's simple. It's easy. For you athletes out there, this product is NSF certified for sport. It's lifestyle friendly. Whether you are keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste, Athletic Greens is offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. If you visit my link today, these travel packs will come in handy for your summer travels. So whether you or your family member are looking for peak performance or better health, covering your bases with Athletic Greens makes investing in your energy, immunity, and gut health simple each day. It's also tasty and efficient. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash chael and join the athletes and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to optimal health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash chael and get your free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. George Masvidal is now calling out Nick Diaz in some fashion. What took so long? I don't understand what took so long. You guys remember where all of this came from? So Nate and Masvidal fight, of which, are they going to rematch? Because that's always weird with Nick, by the way. If Nick thinks that's his brother's fight, Nick's not going to take the fight. If Nate wants to fight George, Nick will be out. It's, it's one of these things. We're for that to happen as much as you guys want that to happen, as much as you're salivating at the mouth. Do you care? And you might slightly, but do you care? If you get a Masvidal versus Nate or you get a Masvidal versus Nick, are you just in either way? Or does it need to be Nick? Is there something with Big Brother coming in to take on an opponent that Little Brother lost to? I get where that story works. But I'm telling you right now, before you get too excited, that's going to be a problem. If Nate wants that rematch, it's just the way that works over there. So what did take Masvidal so long, though? I mean, that makes perfect sense. And you guys will remember where this came from. Okay, they go out, they fight for the BMF title at Madison Square Garden. Nick, two days later, is on Errol Hawani's show and says things about Masvidal. Dismissed him completely. And it was very interesting. It was very entertaining. And that's also where Nick started to flirt or hint at the idea that he might be coming back. So that thing was red hot. It was red hot for a while, and then it dies off. And all of a sudden, here we are two years later, and now it looks like Nick is coming back but doesn't have an opponent, and so Masvidal's inserted himself. And I'm wondering what took so long, because I love that fight. I would want to see Masvidal versus Nate. I do buy into the hype, at least slightly, that there was supposed to be two more rounds. I think that story works. Whether it was a reality or not for that particular contest, I think that that works. If you want to have Big Brother come in, and who's Nick going to fight, right? I mean, I can go on and on about this topic, but I don't have a better idea for Nick. I would have a perfect idea for Nick if we heard from Nick. I mean, it seems to be the only part that's missing. And anytime you're doing a negotiation and you suggest something, if they don't like it, they should then suggest something back. That's how you get a deal done. 
But it appears that Nick's side is saying no when they don't like the idea, but not offering another name. And Nick's only given us a couple of clues, right? I mean, he made that statement one time years ago. I don't want to get in there and jump around with these younger guys. Okay. But then he drew right into Anderson Silva, who's helped to fit the bill, even if he had to leave the weight class. So are we left with we need a three and a five or up in the age category? Are we left with that? Is that is that a hard and fast? Or could it be a, more of a veteran? You know, you still got Carlos Condit out there. You still got Matt Brown out there. Damian Maya apparently just left. I only bring that to you because when we started to deduce who the likely suspects were, they just weren't quite as appetizing as some of the other names. And then we get hit with, by Dana, Hazmat Chemayev. Well, that fight doesn't happen. To my understanding, Hazmat is figuring out what to do right now, but has moved on from Diaz because we heard the talk of Luke Rockhold. So he's moving on. He's going to do something else. What does Nick do? We could go round and around. And it seems as though, for the good news for Nick, is every time an idea pops up, we like it. I have not heard a Nick Diaz idea pop up yet where people are going, yeah, I want to see that. Right? It's one of those things, and you can't do that with everybody. Not everybody's in one of those spots. Nick has something different. Not to mention he has a commodity, and he has a card that he gets to play once. A comeback fight is a big fight. But you only get one. So where are you going to use it? Who are you going to use it against? I love the Masvidal idea. I love the idea that Masvidal is even talking about that. I love the idea that Masvidal is coming back. Look, we never know when you're going to see Masvidal's last fight. Last couple of years have changed things for Masvidal. It has brought the end closer should he want it to be. Then it used to be an option. It is now a choice for Masvidal, but he's made it clear he's coming back. And if he's going to come back and just do special things and big things and fun things, i got no problem with it. There's not a lot of guys that can get that deal. Masvidal's in that spot. I have no problem with that. Connor's in that spot. I have no problem with that. I think it's great. It's unique. We observe it when it happens a time or two. But for sure, no matter how much we love Nick and how fun that would be to come back, he's in that same spot. There's not a contender that is now re-entering the pool. This is a guy who you love to see re-entering. So I'm still stuck with the same question that I began this piece with, which is simply, who should Nick's opponent be? So if it were to happen, George Mosvrall and Nick Diaz would be a massive fight in the welterweight division. And speaking of 170, you all know the former champ, Tyron Woodley, has a big fight on the horizon. Can Jake Paul get in Tyron Woodley's head? I was asked that question earlier today. That's a hard one. I'm going to go with no. However, I think that there's a lot of fun here. Jake Paul had a great line just yesterday. Two days ago, training footage comes out, some still pictures of Woodley in the ring in Vegas training with Floyd Mayweather. So Jake Paul comes on the back end of that and says, I don't care in the least if Woodley trains with Mayweather, he's old. I mean, he just dismissed it, but it's gone now. The story is now gone, and they look like fools, and Jake Paul won. I would love to know who Jake Paul consults, by the way. I would love to know who his team is or his writers here. If he's doing even 80% of this on his own, the guy, as much as I appreciate Jake Paul, I will think he's even better. I really will, because this stuff is hard to come up with, particularly doing a burn and a diss and a dismiss in 10 words. That's very hard to do. 
And Paul seems to do it every single day. Now, can that get in T. Wood's head? That's a tough one for me to imagine. T. Wood's just too long of a competitor. And T. Wood has made a great point, too, which is to say, I don't care how hard Paul is working. I don't care what natural skills you were seeing. You cannot, in this short of a period of time, make up for 30 years of athletic work. I see it the same way. I see it the same way as what T. Wood's saying. Uh, saying. But there's something there on Paul, and we really don't know how good this guy is. In all fairness, we don't have a lot. He had some great feints and showed some real power and some precision and timing in the Nate Robinson fight. Whether you want to admit that or not, he did. But he did not have a tremendous resistance back, so it's hard to know just how good he is. All right, great. Let's bring him in there with Askren, a real competitor who's done this many times. But what kind of a judgment and opinion can you get on a guy on 40 seconds of work? Any sport. Guy could be the best basketball player in the world, but if you only get to see and assess him for 40 seconds and you're a college scout, you can't sign that guy. You're going to need more. So it's one of these things where we do acknowledge and we know there's some power there. That power doesn't mean a damn thing if it doesn't land. Right, guy? You understand that concept. If I throw a perfect and powerful shot at you right now, it doesn't do anything to you because it doesn't land. We understand that concept, but it's also very hard to hit a target the way you want to, fainting, don't forget, he was coming to the body. Jake Paul was coming to the body when he came back upstairs on Askren. That's a technique that takes a lot of time. So we also can deduce whether we saw it in the ring or not. There's a lot of work been put in. There was also a lot that had to go into the emotional side of it, which you may or may not give him credit for, but you should. He's in the back at a show, an event, that turns out to be a disaster, an embarrassing disaster, and he's back there for six and a half hours. At some point on a monitor, having to watch guys slap one another, dealt with it anyway. Found the energy, walked out when it was time, went out and performed. There, there was some real takeaways that you could get from Jake Paul's fight. Both of them. How good is he isn't going to be one of those. How good is he? Because that power will go away for anybody. So what happens then? Is he busy with the footwork? Is he good with the jabs? Can he deal with an onslaught? I think because we haven't seen it, we love to deduce that the answer is no. But wouldn't that be a little bit of a silly deduction to get to considering every other box that has been tested gets checked? Why would we assume the unboxed checks, uh, unchecked boxes are going to be a negative? That's just what we do. That's just how human psychology works. We do that all the time. Well, yeah, you know, Khabib gets a takedown, but if he ever gets stuck on his feet with somebody, and then he gets stuck on his feet with Conor McGregor, lands a hand and puts Conor down. It's, it's one of those things where the greats can adapt. They just don't adapt until they have to. So I feel as this fight is getting a little bit closer, right? I don't think Jake's going to get in T. Wood's head. I think he's going to entertain the rest of us, which T. Wood is expecting him to do. I think this is going to be a real contest of skill T-Wood is awfully spry and he's awfully fast. That power doesn't count unless it lands. And then what happens? This would be my own question. What happens later in the fight? That power is going to go away. Does Jake have a plan B? And while we love to assume that he doesn't, I'm going to guess that he does. Jake Paul is a fighter that most of you out there love to hate. And who's another guy in that category? Well... John Jones, of course. You heard me tell stories about it last Friday. If you missed it, go back and listen. But on today's show, I've got another big question about John that I'm dying to know the answer. 
How many viable years does John Jones have left? And I know we don't know the answer. We're going to speculate. We're, we're going to take a guess. But we have a few pieces of evidence. And I must tell you, before you think this is a typical Chael come and put John down session, I think it's the opposite. I think I secretly am a fan. I mean, to some degree, I must be a John Jones fan because I want to see him. And I'm into the experiment, by the way. I also want to see how this is going to play out. I'm talking about the experiment of later in life changing physiology and becoming a legitimate heavyweight. And there was some things that John was very disciplined about. I mean, he really was. He, I, I think he could have gone to heavyweight at any point. And I think that from many of his training partners, and I could name names, beautiful names, who you all would know and respect, that are heavyweights, were heavyweights, worked out with John in the gym, and dating back to 2014 said, man, this guy could slide up at any time. He's excellent. John didn't see it that way. He wanted to have a more cautious approach and felt that he needed to get to 240 pounds. I don't know how close he is to that, but again, that's why I tell you, I'm, I'm on board with the experiment. There's some rules of life that no athlete has ever got beyond, such as in our later years, we don't do better our, than our younger years, such as when you weigh in at the heaviest you've ever weighed in at, you're also going to put forth the worst performance you've ever put forth. I remember a fight where this was tested. Mike Tyson, I can't remember who he was going to fight. I think it was Lennox. But he was training in Hawaii. And people were ripping up their tickets and throwing it in the air. They bet on Tyson. They're saying it's over. And I remember seeing this, and I was a young kid at the time. I didn't understand it. What's the big deal that he's training in Hawaii? And people were saying, how much training do you think he's getting in if he's out in Hawaii, where it's beautiful and fun, and the sand and the surf? I didn't get it at all. Why, why could he not train in Hawaii? Mike gets to the scale. He was the heaviest he ever weighed in. And a prime Mike Tyson was 220 pounds. And he could be north or south of that. 218 to 222. But right that 220. He came in about 238, 241, something like this. He didn't look like Mike Tyson. And sure enough, all those people that predicted how much training can he get done in Hawaii were right. But there's also some evidence right there on the scale. It's why that weigh-in is so important. It, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. That isn't just a marketing opportunity. A picture is worth a thousand words. This guy takes his shirt off and you can start to manage and judge his level of fitness. It's a guess, but once you do it a few times and then a few years, you get pretty good at your guesses, at least in terms of who's not ready to fight, right? Sometimes you'll have it wrong, go, he looks ready to fight, but who's not ready to fight? I only bring that to you because this by design is what John's doing. While the Tyson example I gave you was done by accident, John, by design, is gaining weight, going to come in heavier than he's ever been. He's not going to compete until he gets to a heavy point. Walks around around that 225, 228, but he wants to get up to that 240, 242. It was a number that he self-imposed, but it was his goal. He's talked about it. I'm repeating it. And I'm into the experiment. I'm not ready to write him off. I'm not ready to say that those rules that applied and defaulted to Mike Tyson or somebody else who did that on accident as a byproduct of not training can also apply to John Jones who did it purposefully, predetermined, and by design. I'm not ready to say that that's the same thing. I want to see. I don't know. That's why I keep calling it an experiment. I can say that till I'm blue in the face, but it really is because who else has done it by design? Who else has done it on purpose? later in life. 
And I'll take a box. You want to throw a boxer at me? Go ahead. I just, I don't know very many examples. And many people have brought up Evander Holyfield, who used to fight in the lighter divisions. But when you go up to heavyweight and you get all juiced up like he did, that's a different weight. That's a very different weight than what a guy in the USADA pool is going to bring on. A guy that's lifting super heavy, cutting down on his workout so he doesn't burn too many calories, eating more food. I mean, there's something cool about this that I really do want to see. And it's going to be very obvious when it's done. When it's all done, this is going to be very obviously a great idea or a disaster. But we're not going to know till it's over. As soon as it's over, we're all going to talk about, well, of course, this was obvious. And No, no, it's not. It's not obvious. Because a lot of the rules that would apply to other people have never applied to John Jones. John has gotten away with stuff. John has performed at a higher level. I'll give you an example. We know that we don't get better at something by not doing it, right? Human nature. We know that for sure. Basic logic. Okay. The guys that John was having a very hard time with, split decisions and whatnot, back when John was doing this consistently, those guys are no longer the guys. They're not. So how would the guy that barely squeaked past them, and according to licensed judges, didn't even beat them, how would he be excelling by not doing it at all? Again, not a rule that we can necessarily apply to John because many rules don't apply to him. He's a rare talent, very rare talent, and he's very determined. I heard Rashad talking about it. Rashad was talking about him today, and Rashad was complimenting the IQ of John Jones, how, how good his fight IQ is. I would not argue with the Hall of Famer Rashad Evans, but I've never seen that. I was a little surprised to hear Rashad say that. Doesn't make Rashad wrong. Doesn't even mean I disagree with him. I was just surprised. I haven't seen a big fight IQ. I have seen a tremendous talent. And I remember in my own career, I used to push back on the idea of game planning. How am I going to game plan? By example, if I see an opponent who is wide open for a spinning wheel kick, but I don't possess that weapon, what's the difference? I have my skills, of which I have displayed for over a decade, on television. Meaning something, they got tape. They can go study me. They can go watch. We're not disguising anything here. So what is the point in game planning? Touch him more than he touches you. Make sure that your level of fitness and your conditioning is of such that you can be there at the end of the night should you reach the end of the night. In a worst case scenario, it was very basic. And I don't know what IQ that John is bringing to the ring. I know what talent. I know what reach. I know what incredible skills and ability with all of the elbows and the knees and, and even the even the unique oblique kicks, by example. I mean, John Jones has been in fights where it's tough for Joe Rogan to tell the audience what he's doing because John's making things up. What about the night that he fought Glover Teixeira? And within 30 seconds of the fight, John just grabs Glover's arm on their feet and just decides to, to rip his bicep off his bone. That had never been done. We saw Frank Muir do that to Taverns back in 99, but they were on the ground. John walks right up to Glover Teixeira, grabs him on the feet and tears his bicep off his bone. I mean, I'm just saying... He's creative. I've seen some wonderful things. I don't know if I saw an IQ. That specifically surprised me. And there's some guys, you don't ever want to rein them in. Believe it or not, there's some guys, don't rein them in. I've seen these kinds of guys. They're three workouts a week guy. They're four workouts 
a week. They believe that they're outworking the competition. No matter how ridiculous it might sound, if they believe it, it becomes real. It's one of these things in sport. I've seen other guys who will train twice a day every single day. If they do both of those workouts with a team, they will not progress at all. Now that's a broad stroke, but that one's for the masses, not a unique. And think about it in this perspective. If you get up every morning at 6 a.m. and you go with a group and you strengthen condition, you work your ass off, and you come back in in the afternoon, let's say 3.30, and you put two hours in on the mat hard, but you do it with a group, there's nowhere that you're going to believe you've outworked the competition. You have to do one of those workouts a day on your own with nobody around. Even if there is a group and a team getting together, you can't go with them for one of the workouts a day because you have to be able to lie and tell and convince yourself that you did something that nobody else did. If you cannot very clearly tell yourself that you did something nobody else did, you don't get a benefit from it. I remember doing this in college. I always worked out twice a day. Always. Never missed. And when it was time to peak, the most important part of the seasons, the coach would bring us all together and we would do sprints in the morning. Well, there was no way to get better because there was no way to believe you were better. Even if the work was more and if the work was getting put in place, if you don't believe that it's to a standard that is secret, that no one else saw, that no one else knows about, if you don't believe that, you don't get the benefit from it broad stroke in what I'm saying here, but it's it's very real. At least for me. At least for my team. At least for what I've seen. I've been at it 34 years. So I bring that to you because there's some guys, you got to give them freedom. you got to let them be loose. You're going to have your Dennis Rodman types. They're going to be out till the club till 2 in the morning. You're going to have your John Jones types. You're going to have those. And you got to give them a little bit of room. And when it comes to how much longer can John do this viably, you do run into a jam of, I'm talking about championship fights. I'm not talking about how many times can he wrap his hands up, how long can he keep a contract, how many more matches can he have. I'm talking about championship fights where he's winning the championship. Look, many guys' career is the same way. They start off somewhere, they make it to the top. They stay there, but then it goes in reverse. They start working their way back down the card, and then they exit stage left into retirement. There's other fighters that once they get to the top, they'll never go back down the car. They just won't do it. They'll walk away. Michael Spinks comes to mind. Ronda Rousey comes to mind. They don't ever go the other way. Now, that decision is always based on the same thing, which is financial. But when you have John midway through his career talking about the financial side, it looks like he's going to be fighting for a paycheck for as many times as somebody's willing to write the check. That's a guess. And who's he go with? He is going to be out for a year in a best-case scenario because of the addition of the interim championship. His phone's not... They don't need an opponent for Francis. They already got it. It's down to two guys, and neither one of them is named John. By the way, where do you think Stipe fits into this? I mean, if anybody deserves... If anybody we know for sure is going to... Of course Stipe gets part three. He's one and one with the... Of course he gets part three. Should Stipe fight John? Is that something John would even be open to doing? Now you're talking about a non-title fight, which is not the reason he went through the experiment in the first place. And guys, I'm guessing. I'm speaking way out of school. I don't know. I do not know. 
I used to have access to John's social media where he was pretty open with us. He'd let you know every time he did a workout, which was about three times a week, and frankly, they didn't look very hard, but when you're trying to get big and fat, you, you can't work very hard. But now I've been blocked on social media, so I when I tell you I don't know, I really don't know what's going on here. I have not seen any signs from John that make it sound as though he's interested in the Stipe fight, and not because he's not interested in Stipe, but because Stipe doesn't have the championship. It looks as though he's championship fights. But what I just laid out for you, and I call it a year, it could be seven months, it could be eight months, you, you get my point. And Gano is tied up with one of two guys. And two guys have stepped forward regardless of who wins. Many people are going to believe they both deserve a shot before somebody else that didn't step up in the first place. And then you have the problem of Stipe. Where are you going to shuffle Stipe to? How long are we going to disrespect that guy? Right? And then you've got the up-and-comers and the Tanner Bozemans of the world, these guys that are, that are going to come storming in. I don't have the answer to the question. I'm asking the question. I'm not answering the question. I'm asking a question. Viability-wise, top-tier-wise, how long does John have? And don't forget the risk that he takes if he takes on anybody that isn't the champion. If he takes on anybody that isn't the champion and he isn't overly confident in his skills, which are becoming cold, possibly ice cold, then he's eliminating never even getting that championship fight in the first place. See the problem? To wrap up today's episode, I want to talk about a guy that John Jones cannot stand, Israel Adesanya. And if you don't know, Izzy also has some beef with another big name fighter, and I don't quite get why. You want to know a feud that I, I missed something here? Like, I, I must have started out on second base and missed how we got there. Whitaker, Adesanya. And I thought I got it. Two guys in the same division. Whitaker's the undisputed champion. Adesanya's the interim champion. I get where they have to match up. New Zealand versus Australia. We're going to hold this thing in Australia. Both countries are going to be represented. Like I felt as though I understand it, and I don't feel as though anything else is missing. I don't remember one thing that Adesanya or I apologize, Whitaker has ever said or done to Adesanya. I don't remember Whitaker holding up Adesanya's career. I don't remember Whitaker denying him a fight, right? I mean, things that could stick with a guy, that could piss a guy off, even if done quietly. I don't remember any of those things happening. So they go out there and they compete. It was not overly competitive. Now, Adesanya does, leading into that fight, what Adesanya does, he builds a fight. He sold 57,000 live tickets, which is the all-time MMA record. Whitaker does what Whitaker does, which is he trains hard. He shows up where he's supposed to. He's a handsome guy, and he's packing 12 pounds of gold on his shoulder. Everybody respects him. Like It appeared to me that everybody did what everybody was supposed to do. And when I say the fight wasn't ultra-competitive, that isn't meant to slide Whitaker. It's what happened. They went out there as a stand-up battle. That was Izzy's game with Izzy's reach. It's the way that it goes. But there didn't appear to be any hard feelings. Now, over a period of time, how long has it been, guys? Two years? Is that a good guess? Adesanya is pissed off at Whitaker again. And that's where it comes back to the way that the fight went. It wasn't this back and forth. 
It was Adesanya getting his moment, leaving with his belt, of which never would have happened if Whitaker hadn't showed up in the first place and given him this opportunity, not to mention the 57,000 people. What is Adesanya mad about? I don't know. Adesanya then, fast forward, after he gets done with Vittori, calls out a name and says, my old nemesis, Bobby Knuckles. Bobby Knuckles, of course, being a colloquialism for Robert Whitaker. And I'm looking at it going, that's your old nemesis? Like, that wasn't an overly close fight. I would have probably put Paulo Costa as more of a nemesis because Paulo Acosta was, was doing to Adesanya what Adesanya had done to a lot of other people. And there was videos and there was build-up and there was back and forth. And it seemed very real. And not to mention the fact that Paulo Acosta didn't accept the outcome and the result of that fight anyway and instantly called him back out and says, I'm, I'm coming back after you. Whereas I never heard Whitaker say that. Whitaker seemed somewhat content. He did. He seemed somewhat content with the outcome of that contest and somewhat content with leaving well enough alone and walking away. But he, he's been drawn back in. Whitaker now comes out today, used profanity at Adesanya. I, I don't remember Whitaker using profanity at anybody. And Whitaker was pretty candid. He said, look, Adesanya got in my head. Now, this is where the, he called him some names, said he got into my head. Looks like these guys are going to rematch. I want to enjoy it. I want to look forward to this. I don't have enough yet because the first contest wasn't overly competitive and I don't know where this rivalry came from. I'm asking, what happened here? Did Whitaker do something to Adesanya? Why is Adesanya, who took Whitaker's belt, referring to Whitaker as his old nemesis? Why is Whitaker upset with Adesanya for getting in his head? It would seem as though something you you tip your hat to, go, well done. Didn't know anybody could get it in my head. It's never happened to me before. You succeeded. Won't happen again. But it wouldn't seem as though it was a personal vendetta. It would seem as though everybody did what everybody was expected to do. And then we had a contest under the unified rules, and we agreed to shake hands and walk away and live with the result. I'm missing something. Or am I not? Am I not? Are these two just mad at each other just because one day they woke up and decided they're rivals? All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. And I hope that you take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review on the show like our friend Jay, who says, Chael, you the man. Well, thanks, Jay. I think you are the man. And I'll be back on Friday to give you my official UFC 264 predictions. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome.